what an honor and pleasure it is to be here. And actually, John Coulter of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, where you're going tomorrow for lunch at Coulter Bay, was the first white man into this part of the country. To all you kids who are going to be running the 21st century, I want to tell you, I want to start off the 21st century with Colin Powell for president. But that is not my subject tonight, and I have been, I've got a clock right in front of me, and they tell me eight minutes. I'm a professor. I'm used to 50 minutes. I'm going to do my best. I envy Meriwether Lewis for his great adventure, the greatest camping trip of all time. And all that went into it, discovering almost daily new plants and animals, making the first map of the western two-thirds of the North American continent, dining alone with Thomas Jefferson two and three nights a week on a two-year period, having Thomas Jefferson as his private tutor in such fields as zoology, botany, ethnography, astronomy. No one can aspire to or identify with such experiences, which were unique to Meriwether Lewis. No one can ever again be the first literate person to hear the Western Meadowlark sing, or the first to see the Great Falls of the Missouri River, or the first literate person to step over the Continental Divide, or to enter the gates of the Rocky Mountains. None of us can have those experiences. But what I envy Meriwether Lewis the most for is not experiences that he had that I can never have, but his friendship with William Clark, an experience that we can all of us hope to have in our own way, in our own time. I, I don't have time to go into any of the details of this remarkable friendship. I can only give generalizations. But to begin with, Jefferson picked Lewis to lead the expedition. Lewis then said he wanted another officer along. Jefferson said, that sounds like a good idea. Lewis then made the offer to William Clark, who had been his superior. Clark had been a captain when Lewis was a lieutenant, and they had served together. And Lewis offered Clark a co-captaincy. Now, this is never done in military affairs. Never done in corporations. It's never done in government. I mean, you don't share power. Lewis did. He made this offer, and Clark accepted. He made it because of his friendship with William Clark and what he knew about the man, and Clark accepted on that basis what they thought about each other and felt towards each other. The situation they faced was fraught with danger. They had ahead of them 4,000 miles of wilderness, peopled by Indians who had to be regarded as hostile until proven otherwise. Indians who, for their part, had to regard all strangers as threats. They had mounds to cross, rapids to run, falls to portage. If at any time they disagreed over one of the daily, often life-threatening decisions they would have to make, 
and a quarrel ensued, Lewis was in a position to pull rank on Clark. But he was confident that would never happen. And so was Clark. And I'm damned it never did happen. They were superb company commanders. They knew how to push their men to, but not past, the breaking point. How to get more out of the men than the men ever realized they had it in themselves to give. And to get more out of themselves. They did this for 28 months. So far as can be told, not once on the expedition did the captains exchange a sharp word. No matter how cold they were, how exhausted, how dangerous their situation, how miserable their existence, how hungry or worried or frightened they were, they never spoke sharply to one another. What Lewis and Clark and the men of the Corps of Discovery had demonstrated is that there is nothing that men cannot do if they get themselves together and act as a team. Here you have 32 men who had become so close, so bonded, that when they heard a cough at night, they knew instantly who had a cold. They could see a man's silhouette in the dark and know who it was. They knew who liked salt on his meat and who didn't. They knew who was the best shot, the fastest runner. They knew who could get a fire going the quickest on a rainy morning. Around the campfire, they got to know about each other's parents and loved ones and each other's hopes and dreams. They had come to love each other to the point that they would sell their lives gladly to save a comrade. They had developed a bond. They had become a band of brothers. And together, they were able to accomplish feats that we just stand astonished at today. It was the captains who welded the Corps of Discovery into a team. Indeed, into a family. And the key to their success was their own friendship. Friendship is different from all other human relationships. Unlike acquaintanceship, friendship is based on love. Unlike lovers, friendship is free of jealousy. Unlike children and parents, friendship knows neither criticism nor resentment. Friendship has no status in law. Business partnerships are based on a contract. So is marriage. Parents are bound by the law, as are children. But friendship, it's freely entered into, freely exercised, freely given. Friends never cheat on each other, or take advantage, or lie. Friends do not spy on one another, yet they have no secrets. Friends glory in each other's successes and are downcast by the failures. Friends minister to each other. 
Friends, give to each other, worry about each other, stand always ready to help. It's very rarely achieved that at its height, friendship is an ecstasy. For Lewis and Clark, it was an ecstasy and the critical factor in their great success. And now I'm going to shift for a second or for the conclusion and share with you a handwritten letter that I received this year from a young man named Alex Greenwood of Oakland, California that seems to me to speak to young people today. Dear Prof. Ambrose, last April I read your book on Dawned Courage and ended up using it as a guide to retrace the steps of Lewis and Clark during my summer vacation. I apologize for disturbing your busy schedule with this letter, but I thought you might be interested to learn what your book has meant to one 29-year-old man searching for direction in life. And he relates that he flew out to Montana with three of my old friends from high school. The four of us had always meant to remain inseparable. But late nights at work and in graduate school made it difficult to stay in touch. We had begun to feel comfortable in wingtip shoes and neckties. How fitting we thought that your book, which celebrates the friendship of Lewis and Clark, would reunite us and make us trade fluorescent office lights for the shared warmth of an honest Montana sundown. And so they came west, and they traveled, and crossed the Bitterroots, and then did Idaho and the Lolo Trail. And now to continue, here it was that I realized why you might have chosen the title for your book, and why your telling of this epic has affected me so much. My generation is collectively approaching the age of 30, the time when we're supposed to begin to make our mark on the world. But look around in America today, and it's hard to keep one's optimism. Many of my high school friends are still living at home, seemingly aimless. We have learned to become electronic voyeurs through TV and the Internet. After all, being a spectator is much safer than participating in real life. We indulge in cynical orgies of self-hatred. We cheer on Homer Simpson, Howard Stern, Beavis and Butthead, and all the other mass media anti-heroes who relish in exposing the most grotesque aspects of American culture. Far easier to do this than to risk looking foolish by believing in something noble. But Meriwether Lewis was different. His story reminds us why America is the land of opportunity. It isn't just because our land and democracy provide opportunities for those who would take them. It also is because we Americans are a people who create opportunity through a peculiar blend of genius, relentless optimism, discipline, and utter stupidity that is unique to our culture. Lewis was going to get to the Pacific and back, and if the mounds turned out to be twice as high as he expected, the river's twice as dangerous, the bear's twice as big, it just didn't change what he was going to do. So thank you, Prof. Ambrose, for giving me an exciting adventure story, an intriguing historical analysis, a reminder about the importance of friendship and the joys of the great outdoors, but most of all,
Thank you for providing a story with a subtle but clear political and moral purpose. As I rise up through the ranks as a local government official, my current profession, I will do my best to hold to its ideals of honest service to one's country, teamwork, friendship, and personal character. God bless you all. Go get them, kids.